In Psalm 117 we read, Praise the Lord, all nations. Laud Him, all peoples. For His loving kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord is everlasting. Praise the Lord. Father, we're here to study Your truth. And we pray that Your truth will be clear to each of us, and that through the truth as we perceive it, our lives will be shaped into the image of Christ and that we will be caused to be obedient. As we study this passage or these passages this morning, again, Father, we see underlined and underscored the importance of obedience, of faith, obedience, humility, the things which come from God alone. And Father, I pray that these will not only be truths that will enter our head, but will penetrate our heart. Father, we submit to you this morning pray that you will be our guide. Your spirit will be our teacher. And we ask that throughout this complex this morning, you'll be divinely and powerfully present in every class, anointing each teacher, and in the service, uh, concurrent service, that you will bless in the teaching of the word and in song and in all that transpires, that your name will be lifted up. And as Jesus said, as I am lifted up, all men will be drawn unto me. And so we trust you to complete that promise in Jesus name. Amen. After seven years of warfare, Israel had finally completed the conquest of Canaan. And you remember that uh, this, the passages we've been looking at have focused on the Transjordanian tribes, the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Just in case you've kind of slipped in terms of how all of this works together, let me just remind you of the fact that Jacob had 12 sons, and those 12 sons became the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. But because God chose one of the tribes by the name of Levi to be the priestly tribe, he caused the tribe of Joseph to be split in two to the two sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. And so by taking Levi out so it was not one of the 12, that would mean 11 tribes of Israel, right? But no, by splitting Joseph and Ephraim and Manasseh, you still have 12 tribes. And so in effect, you have 13. But 12 are the ones that are constantly being referred to in terms of the uh, promise of the land of Canaan. And we've already seen how Levi received the inheritance that belonged to that particular tribe. Now, when the nation of Israel had conquered the Transjordanian area, two of the tribes, Reuben and Gad, decided they wanted to live over there. Some of the clans of the tribe of Manasseh also decided they would live over there too. Some of the clans of the of the Jordan River, which is a highland, an area, as I pointed out, I think, last time, it's about a thousand feet or so in elevation, higher than the highlands of Canaan itself but it still tends to be relatively drier too because of the rain shadow effect which I talked about previously. The men of those two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and half Manasseh, had fought very faithfully on behalf of their brothers, alongside their brothers for the whole seven years. When the fighting was over, you remember at the, at, in the previous chapter that, God, that Joshua commended the, the two and a half tribes, the, the soldiers of the two and a half tribes, for their faithful service. And he blessed them and sent them on home. On their way home, just before they crossed the Jordan River, they stopped and they built an altar monument of stone. 
shaped in the image of the bronze altar that is before the Lord's tabernacle at Shiloh. This particular altar, this stone altar near the Jordan River, was misinterpreted by some who saw it after it had been constructed or possibly while it was being constructed to be a rival of the bronze altar that was at Shiloh. Israel, therefore, gathered as a nation at Shiloh with the thought that they would launch a punitive expedition against their brothers because they had become apostate. That is, by building this other altar, they were being interpreted as not following the scripture which teaches that they were to burn offerings alone at the bronze altar at Shiloh. Okay? Now, prior to the construction of the tabernacle and all of the equipment that with, went with it, altars were built at various places. Abraham built an altar at Shechem. Abraham built other altars, too, at Beersheba and elsewhere. Isaac built altars. Jacob built altars. But now they were to make their burnt offerings alone at Shiloh, or wherever the tabernacle was on the bronze altar. So this was viewed as an act of heresy. Wisely, however, Joshua sent Phinehas, the heir to the high priesthood, as well as the elders of the tribes, of the nine and a half tribes in Israel, in, in Canaan, over to talk with the Transjordanian leaders to make sure that they were interpreting this right. And that leads us, of course, to the explanation that was given in the 22nd chapter of the book of Joshua, beginning at verse 26. We read this last time. I would like to read it again, if I may. Therefore we said, Let us build an altar not for burnt offering or sacrifice. Rather, it shall be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we are to perform the service of the Lord before him with our burnt offerings and with our sacrifices and with our peace offerings, that your sons may not say to our sons in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. Therefore we said, it shall also come about, if they say this to us or to our generations in time to come, that we shall say, see the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offering nor or for sacrifice, rather as a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away from following the Lord this day by building an altar for burnt offering, for grain offering, or for sacrifice, besides the altar of the Lord our God, which is before his tabernacle. So when Phinehas the priest and the leaders of the congregation, even the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words which the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the sons of Manasseh spoke, it pleased them. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the sons of Reuben and to the sons of Gad and the sons of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst, because you have not committed this unfaithful act against the Lord. Now you have delivered the sons of Israel from the hand, hands of the Lord. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and the leaders returned from the sons of Reuben and from the sons of Gad, from the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, to the sons of Israel, and brought back word to them. And the word pleased the sons of Israel, and the sons of Israel blessed God. 
and they did not speak of going up against them in war to destroy the land in which the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad were living. And the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad called the altar witness, for they said, it is a witness between us. The Lord is God. It's a powerful passage of scripture dealing with what was misinterpreted to be heresy, apostasy, and turned out to be exactly, really, the opposite. Phineas and the elders. Now remember, I, I mentioned to you before that Joshua undoubtedly chose Phineas because Phineas was sort of like a spiritual ferret. <laughs> he knew heresy when he saw heresy. And, and we know how he had dealt with it earlier and, and was approved by the Lord for his action. And so now he goes, and if he comes back with a word concerning this, everybody can know that this is the truth. And so he, he brings along with the other elders this, this wonderful information back. They themselves, of course, were told in the passage, were greatly relieved that this was what really was transpiring and not the apostasy that they had originally suspected. In fact, what they had feared would be a threat to peace and a challenge to the true faith proved to be rather a facilitator of peace and a symbol of fidelity to the God of Israel. I don't know if there's many times when you can think of that yourself in your own life when something has happened and you've, you've assumed because of its appearance at the moment that it was something contrary to what it actually turned out to be. But this was a joyful discovery on the part of these men to realize, no, they are attesting to their faithfulness. They are not challenging the faith. And so they returned. Now, of course, the scripture just simply says they returned, you know, and, and the, they returned to cover several days of journey <laughs> from the heights of the Gilead Plateau down the escarpment through the Jordan Valley and up the other escarpment to, to Shiloh, a journey of several days, uh, as I noted uh, before. And all the time, I'm sure the joy of the Lord was filling their hearts. They probably had little, you know, rejoicing meetings along the way because a tremendous burden had been lifted off their shoulders, especially for Phineas. Because Phineas was not just concerned that, oh, maybe these guys have gone wrong. He felt the whole weight of evil bearing down because if this were apostasy, all of Israel would suffer. And that it was not was just like, whew, you know, the guy was probably floating across the ground as he, uh, as he came back. And when they returned to Shiloh with the true story of the meaning of the altar monument, all of Israel was greatly relieved and filled with joy. They had really had enough of war. They had gathered at Shiloh with the attention, if necessary, of going to war against their brothers. But that was not what they wanted to do. They weren't just itching for another fight. They'd had enough of it. Especially they were not interested in fighting against their own brothers. But what is interesting here, they had demonstrated their willingness to do the hard thing. If necessary, they would fight their brothers in order to rid the land of heresy. They would do it, but they didn't want to do it. Wisely, of course, they had sought a peaceful solution. And this whole scenario had played out that we have, that we talked about last time and I just finished describing this morning. Psalm 34, 14 says, depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Pursue it. Pursue peace. Don't just think it's going to happen. We have to pursue it. 
We have to seek the peace of God, the shalom that is mentioned all through the Old Testament, the shalom. And, and of course, as Jesus himself promised, the shalom of the Old Testament only comes through him. His peace, not the world's peace. The world's peace is meaningless, isn't it? Uh, what can be peace for a moment can be war shortly. Let me just study that little tiny interval between World War I and World War II. <coughs> peace, peace, and there is no peace. And the peace of God, however, is eternal. Because the altar was intended to be an enduring testimony, a witness of the oneness of all the tribes, we on the other side of the Jordan are as much a part of Israel as you who live in Canaan, they were saying. And we do not want anybody down the line saying, well, you guys live over there, you're on the wrong side of the Jordan, therefore you're not a part of Israel. They built this altar to testify that they were one people. And they called the altar Ed, which means in Hebrew, witness. It was an, a monument to the true God in Gilead, in Canaan, both sides of the river. So what does this say to us? I think it tells us that just as this rock monument was a testimony to the common faith of Israel, be they in Transjordan or be they in Canaan. So our words and our lifestyle should remind us of our common faith. Your words, my words, your actions, my actions should be a constant reminder to one another of our commitment to the Lord, of our common faith. Yes, there was a rock monument. It was made out of stones. It was a symbol. It was a symbol, however, of a reality of faith in Reuben, Gad, and half Manasseh, and in the other nine and a half tribes, which would be then acted out in the very lives which they lived. Are we faithful witnesses to the truth? I don't mean just with our mouths, because as the word world often tells you, words are cheap. When others watch our lives, do they see strong and enduring evidence of our faith. I think for our lives to be the monument they need to be to the true and the living God, we've got to faithfully study and apply the scripture. There is no other source of truth than the living word of God. I know there are those out there today who walk around saying, oh, well, God just gave me new revelation last night and it supersedes the scripture, therefore I'm going to go this way. Well, Muhammad sat in a cave and also got revelations, and we know where that led. We have to stick to the scripture. It is the solid foundation of our faith. It is where we find doctrine. There are many today who say, oh, doctrine, you know, what, you know, doctrines for people who sit in little ivory towers and go through old manuscripts. Doctrine is simply the statement of what we believe. And if we don't understand basic doctrine, our faith is, is, is on kind of a shaky foundation. We need to have a basic root in the doctrine of the scripture and then in the application of that doctrine to our daily walk. I'd like to read from the fourth chapter of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter four. It's a familiar passage, but I think it bears repeating in the context of these events in Canaan. 
Ephesians chapter 4, reading at verse 11. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, some as pastors, and some as teachers. What for? Why did the Lord do that? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Yeah, just, just to stop there for a moment. It seems like some people have the attitude that as soon as you're in the body of Christ, everything is a-okay, and you're already, you know, a mature follower of Christ, which is, is, is not the truth. We are born again into the kingdom as infants. We are children in the faith. And it takes the rigors of life, the study of Scripture, and, and years of prayer to, to begin to build on that foundation until we become in the stature of the fullness of Christ. So the purpose of gifting certain individuals as apostles, as prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, is for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service. So who, who's doing the work of the service? The saints to build up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Notice how it says that. Until we attain the knowledge of the Son of God. When we're born again and we, we, we come to know Christ, we don't know Christ in the fuller sense of the word. We have just come to know him in, in the milk sense, as Paul would say. We haven't come to know him in the strong meat sense yet. And that comes through a careful study of Scripture, lots of hours of prayer, fellowship, listening to the Word of God being broken by the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the pastors and the teachers. That's why I feel it's so important that whether it be in the service or in the Sunday school, that the focus be on Scripture. You know, that's, that's where the focus has to be on Scripture itself, because that's where we grow. Not all the flowery words that go along with it. It's from the Scripture that, that the foundation is built. Until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature person, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer children, tossed here and there by waves. <coughs> Waves of what? Not the ocean waves, of course. Waves of doctrine, waves of new ideas, new theories, uh, you know, whatever happens to come along. Carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. That little phrase, in love, suddenly qualifies the whole idea of speaking the truth. There are some people who just delight in speaking the truth, but inside what they're trying to do is show that they are a higher spiritual, on a higher spiritual plane than somebody else that they're talking down to. And, and that is not what this says. If we're sharing the truth or the knowledge with that attitude, we might as well shut up because we need to speak the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself. How? In love. In love. Love must characterize the church of God. And that's why I think it's so tragic sometimes 
when there is denominational rivalry which breaks down into bitterness. I talked about this before, I don't want to beat a dead dog, but we, we need to exemplify that ourselves. You know, if the others aren't doing it, we need to start doing it. And, and to love the unlovely. And sometimes there are certain people who call themselves Christians who are a bit unlovely because of what they do or say, quote, in the name of Christ. You know, it always reminds me of the Crusades. I don't think the Crusaders were real Christians, but nevertheless, they went forth in the name of Christ, supposedly, and, and chopped down the pagans, uh, the, the Muslim infidels, you know. In the name of Christ, I cut you in half, you know. I just don't find that in, uh, in the Scripture, and it's, uh, I think, important for us to bear the truth in mind. To be a witness. Today, I think it is as important as it has ever been, maybe more so, I was reading, maybe you have too, in Citizen Magazine and elsewhere, they pointed out how the ACLU was amazingly quiet during the Littleton, Colorado thing. And they didn't come down and say, you can't hold a church service on the, you know, go sponsored by the government, because the, the government itself sponsored a church service memorial for the, for the people that were, the children that were killed. And the multiple pastors got up and were able to speak, and the government sponsored this. Did the ACLU climb on them? No. Why not? <laughs> it wouldn't have looked good doing that, right? Suddenly, in the midst of tragedy, it's okay to talk about God. But when things aren't tragic, why, you, you, can't, you can't introduce God. As this article pointed out, if you introduce God, maybe you could avoid some tragedy. You know? Anyway, we need to bear witness in, in whatever the venue we find ourselves. As this monument was a witness, so our lives must be a witness, not just with word, but with deed. We must be, as business people, we must bend over backward to be an example of being ethical, moral, and everything else. No shadiness, no questionable activity of any kind, but uh, to, to take that step beyond to demonstrate the truth of who we are in Christ. Well, this brings us to Joshua's farewell address in the 23rd chapter of the book of Joshua. I'd like to read the first five verses. His farewell address pretty well occupies the last two chapters of Joshua. But let's read the first five verses to begin with. Now it came about after many days when the Lord had given rest Israel from all their enemies on every side, and Joshua was old, advanced in years, that Joshua called for all Israel, for their elders, their heads, and their judges, and their officers, and said to them, I am old and advanced in years. You have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he who has been fighting for you. See, I have apportioned to you these nations which remain as an inheritance for your tribes with all the nations which I have cut off from the Jordan even to the great sea towards the setting of the sun. And the Lord your God, he shall thrust them out from before you and drive them from before you. You shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. As you read through this passage, you'll discover that neither the time nor the place are mentioned specifically in the passage. But I think that this solemn convocation where Joshua called the leaders of his people together to give this farewell address, 
I believe that this solemn convocation probably occurred within about three years of the completion of the conquest. And the place was most likely Shiloh because that was where the tabernacle was. The leader of Israel, that the people had faithfully followed for lo these ten years now, is giving his final exhortation to the people. He had led Israel brilliantly and successfully. But one of the things I emphasized before, and I'd like to emphasize again, he took no credit for, to himself. He does not say, I have led you successfully. I have given you victory. I have defeated the evil one, uh, the, the enemies. He constantly says, the Lord did this. The Lord did that. The Lord accomplished this. Humility. Joshua, as in the case of Moses, is an outstanding example of humility. Humility is one of the great marks of a true man or true woman of God. Without humility, we are, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, sounding brass and tinkling cymbals. Remember when Aaron and Miriam challenged Moses' leadership? God brought them before him and he says, Who are you to challenge this man? Who is, he said, the humblest man on the face of the earth? I mean, that is a monument. <laughs> that is a stone monument to God, to be the humblest person on the face of the earth. And he said, to, to underscore that, he says, and to him I speak face to face. He says, prophets dream dreams and see visions, but with Moses I speak face to face. Various forms of the word humble and humility are used scores of times in both testaments of Scripture and in virtually every case. They refer to the man or the woman of God whom God exalts and whom God honors. In Psalm 25, 9, we read these words, He leads the humble in justice. He teaches the humble his way. Because, you see, the proud are unteachable. The proud are unteachable. If a person is unteachable, it's because of pride. Think about it. If you know someone, even in spiritual leadership, who is unteachable, there is a pride problem there. It, there there's not the humility that belongs there. And of course, we all deal with pride. I mean, none of us is immune to pride. We're, we're all, we all suffer from it. But the more we face the living God, the more we discover we have no reason to be proud. <laughs> and I, I'm not a firm believer in, in what some call worm theology, where we go around beating ourselves on the, you know, like the medieval flagellants who stripped themselves of the waist and went along with ropes with little pieces of metal and whacked themselves in the back, you know, walk through town, oh, woe is me, we're terrible, we're awful, we're, you know, we're the responsible people for all the tragedy in the world. But, but we need to come to a place of realizing who we really are in God's eyes. Sure. We're, we're exalted along Christ, but we start out with realizing that without Christ we are, we are nothing. What is very interesting to me is as you look at the Hebrew word, which is translated humility or humble, you'll discover that in many passages it is also translated affliction. Affliction. Think about that for a minute. Humility and affliction are partners. Most humility comes a result as a result of affliction. 
It takes affliction for our pride to be ground down and, and for us to understand that we totally are dependent upon God. I'm using the word totally, not as a teenager does, but in the true sense of the word. We are totally dependent upon God. And that is totally true. Do you totally understand? <laughs> Undoubtedly one of the most powerful passages in all of Scripture that teaches concerning humility, particularly as it being a godly attribute, is the passage. We've looked at parts of it before, but let's just turn to it again. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, if therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. I mean, it just keeps coming back to this monument. One, we are one in Christ. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself or herself. Well, if that doesn't put it right where the rubber meets the road, I, I don't know what does. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That doesn't, of course, mean be a busybody, but that means to be genuinely concerned for others' needs. And, of course, we demonstrate that at least by praying for these people, and sometimes that's all we can do, but that's a big thing, by the way. <laughs> Having this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the very essence of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to hold on to. Now if you have the, N, the NASB, which I'm reading from, you'll notice I've changed the words because I'm giving you what the words really mean. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in, a, in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I mean, there are just a few words there in that short little verse there, but it speaks volumes that the God of the universe would humble himself, himself to become a human being even to the point of dying in, in, in one of the most uh, horrible ways to die. I mean, there you are hanging before everybody else. You're not even being shot in some little courtyard or, or, or you know, in, in some little room being uh, given poison gas. You're hanging out in front of everybody in a public roadway. Death on a cross. I mean, that is the greatest example of humility that exists. To come from the right hand of God the Father, co-equal with the Father, God of the universe, creator of it all, and to be publicly humiliated before these creatures. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
You look high, you look low, you look in every religion of the world, and you will not find such a story. Because the religions of the world are man-invented. And man-invented re religion cannot conceive of such sublime humility. Cannot conceive of it. It's not our nature to be humble. And yet, Jesus demonstrated that for us. So who are we to be proud? Who are we? Joshua exhibited, exhibited godly humility because he constantly exalted the Lord and said, the Lord gave us the victory. It is the Lord who has given us the peace. Peace comes from God. I, I think as Joshua gave his farewell address here, it, it came vividly back to his mind the moment when God commissioned him for the task to begin the conquest. Let me just read those words briefly to you. Again, we studied them about 10 months ago. In the first chapter of the book of Joshua, we have these words. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail or forsake you. Verse 6. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land, which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall, met that doesn't mean you shall talk about it. <laughs> it means it shall not be gone away. It shall be spoken from your mouth continuously. But you shall meditate on it day and night, you sh that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then, for then, you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have success. Why is it there are Christians who don't seem to have success? It's because they don't meditate on the Word of God day and night. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. What a promise that God made through Joshua to his people Israel. Joshua's job was simply to believe and obey, and as a result, the victory would come from the hand of God. Therefore, he, knowing that, acknowledged God in everything that he did. As you can see, um, these passages of Scripture are just, what word shall I use? Bubbling over with truth that applies to us. You know, the truth of faith, the truth of humility, the truth of obedience and how it is important for us. The truth of being a witness that is steady like that rock monument was. I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't suppose we could find that rock monument over there today. A lot of things have happened in the uh, 3,400 years or whatever it's been uh, since that monument was built. And, 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 of course, you cannot find the tabernacle today either, and you can't even find the temple today because it isn't the physical structure that is lasting. It is what the physical structures represent. That is the solid foundation. That is the altar, uh, the monument. It, it's what's built into God's people and built into the church. Today, I think we're going to find that the direction our country is headed 
that you and I are probably going to be called upon to be more solid as witnesses than we've ever been before. Because I think things will turn against the free proclamation of the Word of God. I think that things will get far better, worse before they get better. And, and even though none of us looks forward to what we would call persecution, and, and many have already experienced it in one form or another, it's good for the church. It's good for the church. It's not something really to be feared in the sense it will strengthen the church. The church has always been strengthened by persecution. It's never been destroyed by persecution. And because you can't destroy the living God. You can't destroy His Word. It's eternal. Forever it's settled in heaven, the Scripture tells us in the Psalms. And so our faith needs to be that no matter how things seem to be turning, we need to be more and more rooted and grounded in Christ and in His Word, that we will be strong to face the issues that are ahead of us. Well, Joshua goes on, and we won't pursue that today, but further on in the 23rd chapter, uh, in his farewell address, he, he talks more about being firm in their faith, clinging to the Lord. I mean, that word clinging is like stuck like glue, you know, to the Lord, and fervent in love because these are essential parts of maintaining that rock-solid witness that we are to be as we face the, the winds of, of change in our world and even the many doctrines. Yeah, it, it just amazes me how some people quickly switch from one belief to another belief to another belief, and they, they, they become um, avid supporters of kind of, a, uh, of, of, of fringe ideas. Uh, why is that? I think it's because they have not been solidly grounded in God's Word, so they know the counterfeit when it comes along and, and are able to stay true to the truth. I've, I've said this before, but if you know Scripture well, when somebody comes along with, with, a, with something that sounds good but, but actually is fringe or heretical, red flags begin to fly. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> Scripture says something else. This is why that throughout the Middle Ages, the church, and I, I mean the institution of the church, didn't want the people to have the Word of God in their hands. I mean, people like John Wycliffe and Tyndale and Coverdale and others were persecuted. Why? Because they were translating the Scripture into the vernacular and making it available to the people. The church didn't want that because the people would then discover that the church is missing the mark. The church has a lot of man's traditions. They're being taught as truth, and much of the truth is being forgotten, neglected. And so they, they fought against that. So, so we just need to be that, that solid rock of truth that others can look to and say, hey, he's standing, she's standing firm. In, um, early in the Civil War, in fact, it was the Battle of Manassas Junction, the first battle of the Civil War, a man by the name of Jackson was, was leading a corps of individuals and the battle got really rough in that one area, and he and the Virginians stood strong. And others said, look at, at uh, Jackson and his men standing like a stone wall. And he became known throughout the rest of the war as Stonewall Jackson. Let's pray that we'll all be Stonewall Christians. Not stonewalling, but being <laughs> strong like a monument on behalf of the Lord.